you know, one of the things that happens, I don't know, some of you probably have a lot, this is a lot different for you, but uh, it's fun watching my kids as they watch some of these old movies that I watched growing up. And I know some of you, you're like, I've got lots of years of movies for you to watch. Uh, but it was interesting, I, my youngest son, Oliver, has been watching these different movies, uh, and I'm like, oh, this is such a good movie, and then I watch it with him, and I'm like, man, I don't remember that being in there. Like, I don't know if you should be watching this, you know? Like, I don't know, like, the, the PG guidelines change over the last 20 years. So I don't know, it's, it's weird. Something like that has, has happened. And uh, he's watching one of these movies, and it made me think of a movie. I was like, man, it'd be great to watch this one with him, okay? Have you guys remember the movie Ghostbusters? Yeah? Yeah, something strange in your neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! Uh, so really, it made me think it's not on Netflix, so uh, I don't know if I want to rent it. I don't know if it was that good. But uh, thinking about Ghostbusters, it made me think, like, who is on your speed dial? Right? Like, like think about that. Like, when there's something strange in your neighborhood, you call Ghostbusters, but who is it you call when things go wrong in your life? Like when you have a problem with your car, who's your car guy? You got a car guy? You got a friend that you're like, oh man, something's wrong with my car. I'm calling this guy and he'll help me figure it out. Who's your guy, right? Who's your guy when you've got something that, that, that falls apart of the house? You know, you've got something falling down. You're like, man, I don't know how to fix this. All of a sudden my, uh, I don't know, whatever, my septic system is blowing up. Like who's your person you call? My father-in-law tends to be that guy I call, and I'm like, hey, come fix this for me. Come help me figure. And who's the guy you call? When you have, like, maybe a, a career decision going on or maybe a financial decision, like, like, who's the person you call and say, hey, give me some advice here. Help me figure out what I'm supposed to do. Now, I know some of you, you're like, man, do you know who I am, pastor? I am so capable. I don't need to call anybody else. I just figure it out myself. I got Google. Me and Google are best friends. And I, listen, I've been to your house. It's held together by duct tape. Like, come on now, right? And it's beyond just those things. What about personal issues? Who's the person you call? When your kids are driving you crazy, driving you bonkers, giving you headaches, who's it you call? Is it your mom? Mom, I just got to say, these kids are driving me crazy. I owe you an apology, mom. Did I do this to you growing up? Who's that person you call? What about when your spouse, there's issues with your spouse, or you've got a relational issue, they're just driving you crazy. Like, like, who do you talk to? A friend? A counselor? Hey, give me some advice. What am I supposed to do here? How do I fix this? What about when you have a spiritual question? Who do you call? Oh, Pastor Kevin, Pastor Jake, here's my question. Help me figure it out. You know what's surprising, though, is, is, is when we have issues in our life, our first thought usually is, who am I going to call? Why is our first thought not, I should pray about this? Now, I know, like, we're at church, and you're like, Pastor, I'm a Christian. Of course I pray about it. Well, again, one of the things we say here at Restoration Church is we, we, we want progress, not perfection. Which means we don't have to show up on Sunday and say, look at me, I got it all figured out. I always pray first. That's all. Now, if we could just actually be honest with where we are, we might actually see a little progress in our faith. In fact, D.A. Carson said this. He said, if you want to embarrass the average Christian, ask them about their prayer life. And he cited a study at this prominent seminary. There's this prominent seminary. 
all these young people are training to go be missionaries. And out of all the hundreds of students there, only 6% of these future missionaries, 6% of these uh, professional Christians actually had a regular prayer time and quiet time with God. And Carson's point was, if that's true of professional Christians, how embarrassing and painful would it be for us to uncover the prayer life of average Christians like you and I? Why is prayer hard? I mean, let's just, uh, uh, let's just be honest. Like, like sometimes prayer is just, why is prayer hard? Oscar, Oscar Wilde gives us a little bit of insight into this. Oscar Wilde said this. He said, art is utterly useless. Notice he said, art is useless. He didn't say it was worthless. He said it was useless. And why is that? Because we have this utilitarian view of the world, which means we want everything to be practical. We want everything to be helpful. We want things that have an immediate result on us. We want to see and feel the benefit right away. We want to have that impact. We want things to be improved right now. Right? Art is just not practical. Art doesn't seem to accomplish anything. It doesn't get anything done. There's no immediate impact to any piece of art. And so Wilde said... He criticized the world that does not see art as valuable because they don't see its usefulness. What if we take that same idea with art and put it into prayer? Prayer is just useless. And of course, we know it's not useless, but honest, how many of us, how many of us, prayer is the last resort? Oh, I'm going to call this guy and that guy and I'm going to talk to all these different people and I'm going to read this book and I'm going to try all these different things and then when all those things fail, then, oh yeah, we should pray. Or, or we have all these ideas on how to fix our problems and we're like, all right, God, I need you to bless what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to fix this. I just need you to, to, to bless what I'm going to do. Most of us, at best, we pray, God, would you bless whatever I'm going to do? And at worst, we try every other possible solution, and then when there's nothing left, that's when we turn to pray. Because prayer is hard. Prayer is we don't see this immediate result. We don't see things happen overnight. We feel like we don't have control. We have to trust God instead of doing it ourselves. We're in this series in the book of Acts that we've started at the beginning of the year. We'll probably be in through the end of the year, maybe in a little bit in the next year. It's going to be good. Well, we're looking at how the early church uh, in the book of Acts, it wasn't just a place and it wasn't just an institution where you come and you worship. It actually was a movement that everything around it, that it touched was impacted. Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Families and neighborhoods and cities transformed because the church was there, and they were a movement. In this series, we've seen uh, so far through 12 chapters that Jerusalem has kind of been the center of the church world. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to see two final glimpses uh, in Jerusalem before the attention is going to shift out of Jerusalem into Antioch and to the ends of the rest of the world. 
So last week we saw that uh, the church at Antioch, they had this incredible care for the church in Jerusalem. Remember, there was this famine and the church at Antioch said, man, we love these people. We don't know them, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they send relief. They're trying to help the people out. But here in chapter 12, we see this reversal. Now there's this mounting persecution. Jerusalem is showing there's this mounting persecution where, where Christians are being murdered. The church is being persecuted. And really, we see in, in Acts chapter 12, the church is helpless. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix our problems. And it's in that helplessness that in this passage, we see so much power. We see this incredible display of God's strength and power. And the best part about it is it's going to reveal to us where the source of that strength and power comes from. So here's how it starts. Verse 1. Acts 12, 1, it says, About that time, Herod laid violent hands on those who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, James was in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He had Peter, James, and John. They were his closest disciples. And James is going to be one of 11 out of 12 disciples of Jesus' original disciples that are going to be martyred because of their faith. James happens to be the very first one. And it says, verse 3, that when Herod saw this please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had Peter seized, he put him in prison with four squads of soldiers to guard him and tending him after Passover to bring him out before the people. There was this law in that day and age that during Passover, you couldn't have any executions. You couldn't kill anybody. In fact, the only person that was killed during Passover was Jesus because he was a whole unique scenario. And so Herod has Peter arrested. He's planning to kill him, but he has to wait until Passover is over. Now, now what do we know about Herod? Herod was a, a, a bad man. He's a violent man. If you can think back to the birth story of Jesus, remember Jesus is born and the wise men, they come and they bring their gifts and they show up into Jerusalem and they're like, where's he who's born king of the Jews? And Herod says, well, I don't know. This is the same Herod that hears about this king born of the Jews that has all the little boys murdered. This is his grandson. Okay? This is a violent, evil man. And at best, he's just a pure politician. This Herod, when he was with the Romans, he did as the Romans. And when he was with the Jews, he did everything he could to maintain popularity with the Jews. That was his concern, was trying to maintain his status his posture, his, 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 his uh, political reign. So when Christianity pops up and starts uh, causing all these issues for the Jewish people, Herod's like, hey, look what happens when I arrest and I persecute Christians. Look what happens when I kill Christians. I have more favor with the Jews. He kills James. He puts Peter in prison. He's like, I'm waiting. I'm going to kill this guy as well. Now, again, we get in this situation, and, and let's put ourselves there. Like, like, we're facing this immense persecution. What are we going to do? What's the church going to do? What's our solution to this? What's our plan? How many of you would say we need to, you know, make a, hire an assassin, right? Maybe we hire an assassin to go and deal with Herod so that way Herod can't wreak, wreak havoc on us. Maybe we're like, man, Peter's in prison. Let's figure out a jailbreak. Let's figure out some sort of plan that we can break him out of, bust him out of jail. And, 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 but right? I mean, this is what we would do, right? 
Now, Peter's in prison. He's done nothing wrong. How many of us would, would, would take signs and go pick it outside of Herod's house? Let Peter out. Let Peter out. Or we'd go into social media, and we'd be very bold on social media. Oh, this is so terrible. You guys need to like this and share this because this is so bad that's happening. I mean, that's what we do in our day and age, right? We're facing problems. We come up with our own solution. We complain on social media. We tell other people about it. We come up with a plan. And this is what we do in our personal lives. We find out someone we love has cancer. We find that we're unemployed. We can't find a good job. Our kids start going down a, a reckless path. We've got the tides of evil spreading across our country through drug and alcohol abuse and, and abortion and murder and open immorality. And what do we do? We freak out about it. We're like, how am I gonna control this situation? My friend has cancer. Let me research every way to beat cancer and tell them, here's the 15 things you need to do. Our kids are walking away. What do we do? We, we, we grasp on tighter and try and control the narrative. We do this, we do that. We strategize a solution to fix the problem. But look at the church in the book of Acts. Verse 5. While Peter was kept in prison, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What is the church doing? Are they figuring out how to bust Peter out? Are they picketing? Are they writing angry social media posts? No, they're praying. Earnestly praying. That word earnest means to, to, to stretch out, to, to strain. They're literally straining in prayer. They're praying in agony, praying for Peter. And not just praying and say, God bless us, we do X, Y, Z. But no, this is a picture of the church. Man, they're helpless. We don't know what to do, God. God, we need you. We are desperate for you to do something for our friend Peter. Now, some of us right here are like, pragmatically? Why would the church do that? Like there's this persecution going on and, and the church, rather than doing anything about it, the church is gathered in a little prayer circle. How weak is that? Get up and fight, guys. Let's go charge the gates of hell. Because we have so much confidence in ourselves, thinking we have the ability to solve all of our problems. But look what happens at a, to a church that prays. Verse 6, it says, Herod was about to bring uh, Peter out that very night. Peter was sleeping between, between two guards with sentries at the door guarding the prison. Again, remember a couple chapters ago in Acts chapter 5, Peter had this miraculous breakout from prison, and Herod's like, this is not going to happen again. He's got four squadrons of, of soldiers that are continuing to rotate guarding them. There's four people at a time guarding him. 
Verse 7, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter and a light shone in his cell and he struck Peter on the side. I love this. It said he struck him. This is like a parent trying to wake up a teenager, right? Smacking him as hard as he can. Wake up. Come on, get moving here. And if you look next, the next couple of verses, there's going to be five commands that this angel gives to Peter. Listen to these, verse 7. He woke him and saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, the angel said, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. And Peter did so. And he said to Peter, wrap your cloak around me. Follow me. Five commands. Five simple commands. Verse 9, Peter went out and followed. He did not know what was being done by an angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, then he passed the first and second guard and came to the iron gate leading to the city and it opened for them on its own accord and they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left. See, I love this story because this angel gives Peter five very simple commands. Get up, dress yourself, put your shoes on, Put your cloak on. Follow me. Five simple commands. See, God alone does the extraordinary. God alone causes the chains to fall down. God alone causes them to get past the guards. God alone causes the city gate to open up. God alone does the extraordinary. He simply asks us to show our faith through the simple and the ordinary. Right? This angel, this angel removed... uh, the chains. This angel opened it up. Certainly this angel could have put Peter's shoes on. But no, the angel says, I want you to do this. I want you to show that you trust and obey the simple things. And as we read this, I don't actually think that Peter was expecting to get out of a jail that night, right? I mean, he's facing a death penalty the next day. And what's he doing? Sleeping. He's kind of probably, this is what's happening. There's nothing I can do about it. And when the angel comes in, the angel's like, let's go. And Peter's like, is this even, I don't think this is real. I think this is a vision. I think I'm having a dream. This isn't really happening. There's no way I'm going to get out of prison. I don't think Peter was actually expecting God to show up in this way. But do you get the picture of what's happening? Let's not miss this. The church is praying. They're not strategizing an escape plan. They're not planning a political revolution. They are praying. And because of that, they get to see God do the miraculous. They get to see the power and strength of God in a very real experience in their own lives. Verse 12, after Peter came to, it says, he went to the house of Mary, mother of John, who's also called Mark where many were gathered. And what are the people doing? Verse 12, what are they doing? Praying. They're still praying. They're still praying. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the door and a servant girl named Rhoda answered. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported Peter. I love this. Uh, she hears Peter knocking on the door and she's, Rather than open it, she's so excited. She doesn't open the door. She goes and tells everybody, guess, guess what? Peter's here. She forgets to unlock. I love that. It makes me laugh. 
Verse 15, the rest of them said to her, you're out of your mind. And they kept insisting. When she kept insisting, they said, no, it's his angel. The church is like, no, he's already been killed. You're just seeing his angel. He's not really there. You know, I think about, I think about the church, and I'm like, what was that church praying about? Now, they spent all this time praying for Peter. What do you think they're praying about? Oh, they're probably praying, God, God, help Peter die in peace, right? Just make it quick for him, God. Or they're praying, God, you know, as he dies, just help him to be a witness to those around him. Help him be a witness to his executors and to Herod and the guards. God, just help him die with dignity. Do you think anybody in that church was praying and saying, God, God, you delivered Daniel from the lion's den. God, you delivered David from Saul when he was pursuing him to kill him. God, you delivered Moses and the Israelites out of the Egyptians' hand and reach. Do you think any of those prayed a bold prayer and said, God, would you deliver Paul? God, would you not let Paul, excuse me, God, would you deliver Peter? God, would you not let Peter die like James? God, would you miraculously save his life and do something? Peter shows up and the church doesn't believe. This is a huge thing for us to understand because this church is, they're praying but they're praying in a little bit of a weak faith. I don't know how it's going to happen. God, we're going to pray. We just don't know how it's going to happen. See, sometimes we think, well, I can't pray unless I have this, this great, strong, bold faith. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, he said, even the faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. And this church, man, I don't think they've got a bold faith. I think they're just like, God, we don't know what to do. We're just praying. And God hears that prayer of a little bit of faith and shows up and saves Peter. Verse 16, Peter kept knocking at the door, and the door was opened, and they saw him and were amazed. And he motioned for them to be silent, describe how the Lord had brought them out of prison and said, tell these things to James and the brothers. James is a different brother. This is a brother of Jesus who's kind of the head of the church in Jerusalem. Here we have the church facing problems. And what is the church doing? Praying. And because they prayed, they saw that God is greater than Herod and all the plans that Herod could put together. They saw this testimony, no matter how grim life appears, no matter how difficult the problem is, God and his angels are present and they are ministering on our behalf in our lives. And they had the confidence, listen, if God can rescue Peter here, Man, God could deliver us at any moment. The source for our power and strength and life is not in our plans. It's not in what we read in books. It's not our strategies. It comes from 
us depending on God. Luke includes this other little caveat, though, at the end. Luke doesn't want us to think that Herod gets away scotch-free. So after Herod responds to this embarrassment of Peter somehow breaking out of prison, he responds by killing the guards, all 16 of them dead. And in the end, Herod goes to Caesarea, and he's going to give this speech in front of thousands of people. And and it says he's got this this robe uh, made of woven silver. Like it would have been this bright, shiny thing. Hey, look at me. Look how great and powerful I am. And when he's given this speech, it says that when the people applauded, they said, this is the voice of God, not the voice of man. And Herod puffed his chest out, and he loved that. He loved it. It stroked his ego. Man, you guys think I'm amazing. Man, man, this is awesome. And rather than telling them, no, I'm not the voice of God, he, he loves the attention. And in verse 23, it says, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. In verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. You see how this chapter started? In the beginning of the chapter, Herod was in control. The church was losing. Then we come to the end of the chapter, and Herod is dead. And the church is continuing to grow strong, continuing to grow in number, very much alive. And what's the secret? What's the secret that happened in this chapter? What's the secret to God's power? You know what the secret is? It's a praying church. Simply a praying church. And by church, let me clarify what I mean. I don't mean a praying church is a pastor up front praying. I mean it's the people praying. The people so committed to dependence on God that the people are praying. In fact, as we talk about the church in the book of Acts becoming uh, not just an institution, but a movement, Do you realize everything in the book of Acts is rooted in prayer? Everything we read again and again and again is rooted in prayer. Acts chapter 1. You've got the disciples that are gathered together in the upper room. And it says they spent 10 days straight praying. 10 days of prayer. And what happens after they pray? The Holy Spirit descends on them in tongues of fire. And they're speaking in tongues. And Peter Peter preaches a message. And 3,000 people are saved. Why? Because they spent 10 days in a row praying and praying and praying and praying. Acts chapter 4. The church prays. And God fills the church with boldness. And they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, the church in Jerusalem is 10,000 plus people. Why? Because the church is praying. Acts chapter 12. They pray, and guess what God does? God blows open the prison doors. He strikes Herod down dead because the church is praying. Acts chapter 13, the church is praying, and God raises up Paul to be the greatest missionary and church planner that ever lived to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because the church is praying. Every major season of revival, every major work of God, whether it be in a church whether it be in a city, whether it be in a church, whether it be in a family. Every major work of God is characterized by intense, persistent 
prayer. This is where I think about us, and I wish, I wish, and even for myself, I wish we would lose the trust that we have in ourselves. I wish we would stop thinking we're so capable, we're so smart, we're so good, we're so knowledgeable. I wish we would stop trusting our own efforts, our own systems, our own strength, and depend wholly on the Lord. I wish that as Christians, we wouldn't just quote John 15, but we would actually believe it. That says, apart from God, we can do nothing. Oh, we quote it all the time, but do we actually believe it? Do we live our lives as though we can do nothing apart from him? I wish that when one of our friends has a problem, when they have cancer, when they have whatever situation, I wish our solution wasn't, oh, you need to do this. You need to read this book. You need to try this. I wish our solution was, I'm going to stop and pray. But how many of us, that's not the way we're wired. Because prayer feels useless. Man, it'd be much better for me to give you some advice on here's how you solve your problem. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to stop right now and I'm just going to pray. Do you realize the most important tactic of our enemy, Satan, is to keep us from praying? Oh, Satan loves the church when we have this prayerless study. Satan loves seeing the church with our prayerless work, our prayerless religion, because he laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. Oh, but our enemy, he trembles when we pray. Prayer is what turns mere mortals into men of power. Prayer is what brings fire, what brings life. There's no power like the power of when we prevail in prayer. You know, as we look around at our church, our lives, our family, we're like, man, where's the power of God? I don't see the power of God. You know what the Bible says in James chapter four? It says, you have not because you ask not. Again, we have so much confidence in ourselves. I don't need to ask God. I just need to read this book and try this system and, and do this thing. We don't have the power of God in our lives because we're not asking for it. Because we're putting the power in ourselves and not depending on him. And it doesn't mean we just pray once. There's a story in Luke chapter 18. The persistent widow. The example that we are continually to go back to God again and again and again. God, Peter's in prison. Bust him out. Do something about it. God, Peter's still there. Would you save his life? God, would you do this again and again and again? This is persistent prayer. Now let me pause for a second. We read this chapter about God rescuing Peter. The church praying for Peter. But Peter's not the only one in the chapter. What about James? Do you think the church prayed for James? James was killed. 
I, I believe the church probably prayed for James as well. See, here's one of the important things about prayers. When we pray, we have to recognize the sovereignty of God. That means that God is in control. We may not understand it. We may not see it. But God is in control. God has a plan and a purpose. And we, like, we have this limited perspective on life. Like, we see one one-thousandth, one, one, one one-thousandth, I can't even say that word. We see one one million, that's easier. We see one little piece of what God is trying to do. And so we pray and we're like, God, God, would you do this? Would you do that? And sometimes God doesn't do what we want because God has a bigger plan, a bigger purpose. And that's where we take comfort from God, knowing that God is working things out for our good and for his glory, and we may not understand it, but we still trust him. In fact, I'd say the summary of this passage, message summary is simply this. The power and comfort of our sovereign God is unleashed on a praying church. And we want to see the power of God. It comes when the church is praying. And this is where we come to the application. We could probably give you some advice on here's how you pray. Here's how you get better at this prayer thing. But here's what I know. I know there's chains in this room. Physical chains, emotional chains, spiritual chains. And rather than telling you what to do, I think we ought to just pray boldly together. Stop right now and say, let's just close our eyes. Just close our eyes. Lift a hand and let's, let's pray boldly together in this room right now.